Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll be discussing the conservative political action conference going to Hungary. But first, we got banned by TikTok. Uh, If you don't know what I am talking about, the Acton Institute, yes, we have a TikTok account. And no, it is not just to feature Dan Huger's incredible dance moves. We had opened the account primarily to promote uh, content related to our award-winning documentary feature film, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. We released that film online on demand, which you can view by going to freejimmylai.com. We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, We released that film to the public, everyone around the world, on April 18th, and I'm thrilled to share that in uh, in just over two weeks' time, uh, we have 1.7 million people who have viewed the film. Uh, It's been an absolutely incredible success, and we created a lot of promotional material to help tell people about the film that is up on uh, our Facebook, uh, Facebook page. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram. It's on YouTube, and yes, on TikTok. TikTok is one of the biggest and has been fastest growing social media platforms out there, so I think we would have been foolish to not take advantage of that platform. A couple days into having that content up there, one of the videos was removed for violating TikTok's community guidelines. The violation had to do with violent and graphic content in the video, which I must confess, yes, there is violent and graphic content in that video. The violent and graphic content specifically is Hong Kong police tear gassing and beating protesters in Hong Kong in 2019. We appealed that video being removed, and it was subsequently restored by TikTok. Rewind now to last week, Tuesday, May 2nd, about midday, I find out that our TikTok account has been suspended. And what's interesting about this to me is it's a bit like kind of, I guess, like an inverse Hotel California situation where um, uh, you can leave anytime you want, but you can't check out Uh, when you're suspended by TikTok. Uh, The way that we appealed the video that was removed is we logged into our account. uh, We filled out a form to appeal the decision to remove that video content. Well, when you're suspended, you can't log into your account. So you can't appeal the suspension because you can't log into your account. So you're kind of caught in this loop that you can't get out of. So we submitted an appeal uh, for us to have our account unsuspended as well as a request for an explanation as to what happened here to TikTok via their online feedback form. Uh, Eventually... After the Wall Street Journal editorialized about our suspension, we'll include that Wall Street Journal piece in the show notes as well, TikTok removed the suspension uh, of our account. 
and I want to share with you the explanation that they gave to uh, Jimmy Quinn, who is a reporter at National Review, who is covering the story. Uh, Here is what they told him. The account was suspended due to a, quote, technical error, TikTok spokesman Jamal Brown asserted in a statement today. One, quote, one of our automated systems observed unusual activity on this account, which caused it to be removed in error. We've reinstated the account and its content and are investigating the cause of this technical error, he told National Review. TikTok also says that its anti-spam systems monitor certain signals, including likes, follows, message request volume, and the date of an account's creation. So I just want to note that the only thing from that list that they gave there of what can trigger their anti-spam system that we could have been guilty of uh, is a relatively recent date of account creation. We created the account on April 18th, the same day that we premiered the film. So, okay, got that one. I would assume the way that an automated system like this is it's looking for multiple signals. It can't, of course, just be the date of account creation. Otherwise, as soon as you create an account and you start putting content up there, you're going to get suspended under that logic. So that can't be the whole thing. But we weren't doing anything at the time. We weren't liking a whole bunch of content. Uh, We weren't uh, following a whole bunch of new accounts. We follow about 70 people. Um, All of that was done very shortly after the account was created. It's not two weeks after when we ended up getting uh, getting suspended. So there's not a whole lot that we could, uh, I see, that we could have been doing at that point in time. Uh, now, we had, I will note, amassed at that point more than 4 million views of our content about the Hong Konger on TikTok, as well as about 65,000 likes and about 27,000 new followers at the time that we were suspended. So since then, TikTok has unsuspended our account. There were two other videos that were also removed for violating community guidelines. They were removed when our account was restored. No explanation, again, of how these two videos violated the community guidelines. We appealed that, and it was eventually entirely restored. So that is what happened with uh, our TikTok account. And I just want to marry that with a really interesting piece that was published on May 5th by Forbes. Here's the headline. The words TikTok parent bite dance may be watching you say. And this is a treasure trove of internal documents from ByteDance that Forbes got their hands on, translated, uh, and then included this list of terms that are monitored by ByteDance and its subsidiary companies. So TikTok is one of the subsidiaries of ByteDance. There are other social media platforms, some of which are really only in mainland China, um, But what uh, ByteDance and TikTok would have you believe is that what we're learning here about ByteDance and what they're monitoring doesn't apply to TikTok. Uh, that's that's an entirely, entirely different thing. But some of the terminology uh, will be unsurprising to people having to do, of course, with uh, China, with Xi Jinping, with previous Chinese leaders, Li Pang, uh, another one of them, um, June 4. Uh, which is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, which, of course, uh, China does not really acknowledge at all anymore as a thing that happened. Uh, But I just do want to draw out, and again, we'll put a link to this Forbes piece in the show notes as well. One of the terms uh, in that list is Hong Kong. And certainly our content included 
many mentions to the city of Hong Kong and what is going on there. The kind of weird coincidence part of all of this is if you go back to that explanation, the statement that was given to Jimmy Quinn at National Review, um, this was a technical error. Uh, It's just kind of weird how these technical errors seem to keep happening to accounts that are sharing content that the Chinese Communist Party would not like and does not want promoted. Now, whether that has to do with the Uyghurs or Hong Kong or Taiwan or any of uh, a host of other issues, there just seems to be this regular coincidence that it seems to always be accounts that are doing this kind of thing. Uh, So that is the TikTok, if you will, of our last week's experience with TikTok. Does this for either of you change the way that you view? We've talked about TikTok before. We've talked about the hearings. Again, I should also note one more thing. Uh, The CEO of TikTok back in March testified before Congress where he said that they do not promote or censor any content at the behest of the Chinese government or of any governments. Uh, So, look, it is not my position to say that he said something that was not true in that hearing. However, um, our experience certainly seems to differ from what he is alleging there. Now, I don't know that they were doing anything at the behest of the, the CCP, but again, that pattern that I talked about, that it seems to continually be accounts that share things that the CCP would not like are the ones that have these problems. So I want you to revisit the conversations we've previously had about TikTok. Does this now personal Actonian experience with TikTok uh, change your view on this app and how we should think about it and deal with it going forward? This is Dan's total lack of surprise. Um, what we've what we've got here is interesting because particularly the Forbes piece, because when you we've talked about in general the challenges of social media content moderation. We've talked about this in the context of Twitter, other social media platforms. What we have in the Forbes piece and with Acton's recent experience is a way for both of those things to be true, both for TikTok to not be, quote unquote, taking orders in the sense like a waiter would take an order from the Chinese Communist Party, but rather is has set up systems where things that would cause TikTok potential trouble with the Chinese Communist Party are flagged, uh, perhaps automatically. Perhaps there was no one person sitting there deciding this particular video should be taken down, this particular account should be suspended. But there are frameworks that every single company uses to manage platforms that have Tons, millions of creators on them sharing things. And those systems can be arranged so that things that are inconvenient, uh, sometimes those inconvenient things should be inconvenient and sometimes they shouldn't. But we've seen now that there are, you know, internal documents at ByteDance that paint a pretty clear picture of what very well could have happened 
had there not been an actual discrete act of a censor removing a post or suspending a account. Um, and I think, you know, these, um, you know, these algorithms are in many cases proprietary. Um, and the question as to whether we will know ever more than we know now is, is an open one. But I think we have a pretty, we have a, pretty good case to be made that uh, due to content moderation standards, uh, which particularly target um, criticisms of the Chinese Communist Party, of the government of the People's Republic of China, of particular policy regarding Hong Kong, uh, you know, sets up a target for those censors, automated or real. So my feelings are that my dance moves were not good enough for TikTok before this happened, and nothing has changed since then. So uh, I'm still not on TikTok. Um, I certainly, I think people ought to be aware um, that this sort of behavior, you know, comes out of a place, the you know, communist China, where there is no freedom of the press, where if something like this happened within China, um, even if the account was restored in a similar sort of way, there'd be a very clear message given to the account holder that we can shut you down anytime we want. Um, and people would be expected to fall in line. Um, that is not the case in the United States, where we have very broad freedom of speech and press freedom. Um, and I would be, I would love to hear, if you have it, Eric, uh, uh, data on in the last week since this happened, how many views the Hong Konger has gotten uh, to know. Um, I would expect we got a bit of a boost uh, from the Wall Street Journal covering this from other outlets like uh, National Review and Daily uh, Signal or Caller. I can't remember which one. Both. Uh, above, both. Okay, there we go. Um, you know, but several, several places. And of course, a bunch of people tweeting it and sharing it on various social media, probably also on TikTok, TikTok for that matter. Um, and so it's just this kind of thing, which would make sense in their own context, is completely self-defeating here. Um, it just gave us a wonderful uh, megaphone for our message. And I really hope more people hear it. I hope, I hope more than any of this, whatever anyone cares about TikTok, and people should care about TikTok, uh, but I hope more attention is given to Hong Kong and Jimmy Lai because of this. I hope we see real change there. Uh, we see the cause of freedom and democracy get a second wind um, that you know it so badly needs in the face of everything that's been happening there and everything that our, our documentary details. Um, so... That's kind of my take on it. I, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing if somebody likes, you know, fun little videos on TikTok, whatever. But just know what you're getting into, um, and know that if you care about a cause like this, um, TikTok is probably not the app for you. I know I've said this before, but as a uh, millennial, I get my TikTok videos the way that the rest of the millennials do, which is a week later on Instagram. Um, so you can still get access to the same content even if you're not on the app. And I, I really think this is the the thorny question about all of this, right? So so much of what TikTok is doing from a government affairs, government relations perspective right now is geared towards trying to avoid the app getting banned by an act of Congress. And they are in a precarious position because you kind of have a – uh, sort of like a, a bootleggers and Baptists coalition coming together because there are people on the left and there are people on the right who are amenable to the idea of banning the app, but for entirely different reasons. And 
I guess the, the question that I want to throw out there is uh, because I think this is worth asking, and this is kind of the same reason why all public policy discussions, everything that happens in Washington, D.C., um, despite what you may have heard from people like Tucker Carlson, is not entirely being run by libertarians, and they're often not included in the conversation. Uh, but I think all of those public policy conversations need a crotchety libertarian in the room who needs to ask the question, why should we do anything at all? Because I think you need to get past that first hurdle before you start talking about, okay, what is the kind of action that we should take? You need to decide if action is necessary. And... I will confess to having a predisposition against banning things. Uh, I think that that is generally very ineffective. Uh, we can cite examples like the war on drugs as, I think, a quintessential one for we knew what the intention was with that, uh, but has banning drugs made them less available and has it helped the problem or has it hurt the problem? And I would argue that it has made the problem worse, not better. So I don't necessarily know that the benefits of banning TikTok are going to outweigh the problems. Um, if not only that, it's, this is the internet that we are talking about. Like I still, even if you make it so it is not available for download in the Apple App Store, in Google's App Store, there are ways you can still go about getting things like that onto your phone if you want to, if you're going to, uh, if you're that enterprising, if you're that technologically savvy or know somebody who is. So I just don't even necessarily know what the mechanics of this are going to look like. So I'm... Again, coming to this predisposed against the idea of banning it, uh, but it's things like this. It is incidents like this. It is the accounts of other people who have talked about, you know, the genocide of the Uyghurs that is going on in China. It's people like um, Enos Cantor Freedom, the former NBA star, uh, who is a human rights advocate, uh, whose account was suspended at one point in time. Um, it's these kinds of things keep happening. And it's, you know, in a, in a way, I, I almost feel bad for TikTok. Because you know, they are, you know, again, understanding the separation that can exist between the parent company ByteDance and, and the American version of the app. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some very good natured people who are working there who just want to share like really cool dance moves and all of that with uh, the rest of the world. And uh, obviously there are some situations that um, they, they're going to have a hard time dealing with because this kind of stuff keeps happening. And because of what we know about the data that is being fed back to China, and I, I remember hearing from, and I can't remember which, uh, it, was, it was an AEI uh, China expert, it may have been um, uh, Mastro, who was uh, the one I'm thinking of, who talked about the way that the Chinese go about collecting information and data right now, that they used to do it in a very kind of targeted way. They would pick specific targets, try to hack them, try to socially engineer password access so they could get access to all this data. That is really the targeted way is not what they're doing anymore. They are collecting everything that they possibly can, essentially with the idea of, and then we'll figure out what to do with it later. So just I think people should understand, and this is, I guess, where I come back on my position about being opposed to banning it. I think people should be aware 
of what you're signing up for when you put that app on your phone, that you are feeding a whole lot of information about yourself back to ByteDance, which is the parent company, which is headquartered in China, which necessarily means that the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government is heavily involved in it because that is just the way that things operate in China. So I think awareness is going to be a lot more potent than attempts to ban it uh, because you're, the problems that come when you try to ban anything are going to come when you try to ban an app like this as well. And this is what we, what we see is there's not a simple way. I mean, there is a simple way legislatively to ban a single thing. But people rightfully know that this is a larger problem than just this single thing. And we could be talking about Another application with similar problems down the road. The problem is, is when you go down this road, I mean, we have a model in how this is done. It's done in mainland China. And it requires setting up a sort of great firewall. Um, One that is not even effective in China in many cases. um, And that is consuming an increasing amount of resources to maintain so I think there are a couple of questions. There's, there's, there's a legal question, and the legal question involves not only sort of moral questions, public policy interest questions, but also really serious technical questions that a lot of people in Congress are not capable to answer. Um, and it, it's, it's a sticky wicket either way. What isn't, however— is the notion that, you know, recommending that people should not have this on their phones or that state or government employees in particular should not have it on their state and government issued phones. And this, seems, this seems like a clear line to draw as well. Like the rules are different if you work for the government than if you are just a private citizen. Mm-hmm. Sure. And they are different um, if you're a journalist. Um, this is something that if you are if you are dealing with sensitive information, if you are dealing with democracy advocates in China, this is a bad idea for both yourself and those people that could potentially be compromised by this. And this is one of the things. This is one of the things that the legislative debate is good for. Full stop is generating this conversation, talking about the nature of this data collection, talking about the nature of TikTok's relations to its parent company, talking about these sorts of challenges. Um, all of this, uh, you know, raises awareness. I had, I think, on Thursday morning. I had my aunt text me at seven thirty in the morning after hearing people talking about. Act and being banned on TikTok on the radio, on the local radio. And this is a great, you know, would I have talked to my aunt about TikTok otherwise? Probably not. But that's an opening for a conversation that you can have with friends, that you can have with family members about these sorts of challenges and about um, how to be conscientious stewards of their own information and be discriminating about who they share it with, under what circumstances, on what devices, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's great fuel for the conversation. The lesson to me here is the same lesson. TikTok bans uh, Acton and the Hong Konger. Acton and the Hong Konger gets a ton of 
attention because we live in a pretty free country and you can't get away from that. If you try to ban TikTok in the United States of America, all you're going to do is galvanize support among the young, you know, K-pop fans who use TikTok um, and uh, antagonism towards the government, towards older generations. Um, So, no, I think we, you know, talk to people, you know, help them be well informed and don't miss the the real message here. Look at why, you know, what what are the things we, you know, things we've already mentioned, democracy in Hong Kong, persecution of Uyghur Muslims, um, the sovereignty of Taiwan. Uh, these are causes that if Congress wants to do something in response to this, they should focus on those. What can they do uh, to show American support? Um, you know, if we're worried about China being too involved in our economy, how can we open up free trade with other East Asian nations? How can we expand uh, our trade partnerships so that we're not so dependent on them, if that is something we care? Those are things Congress can do. Instead of a token banning, uh, which is, as we already noted, probably pretty impossible um, in the current Internet age, or would take such a uh, you know regulatory structure as to turn us into exactly what we're trying to fight against, um, instead, let's do something for the causes. Let's get let's get to the root of this action that is so bothering everyone, uh, and rightly so, um, and show China that they can't stamp out that message, that the United States is going to stand by anyone uh, who supports democracy, freedom of religion, national sovereignty, these sorts of things that everyone in the world ought to respect if we all want to actually live together, uh, despite our many, many differences worldwide. Um, These are things that are very American values and that we should absolutely stand for. And we should hopefully steer the conversation away uh, from whether or not we're going to ban the newest kids app. I just want to uh, remind people that you can view The Hong Konger now by going to freejimmylai.com. Again, over 1.7 million people have already viewed the film in the first couple of weeks that it has been available online. We encourage you to do the same. Uh, we think you will uh, enjoy. Seems like the, the, the wrong word to use in, in recommending the film. You know, it's um, I think there are notes of hope in it uh, about not just Jimmy and his personal circumstances, but also about the city of Hong Kong and, and the future of freedom in Asia. Um, but yeah, it is it is a, a bit of a, a, a sad and tragic story of a man who is uh, willing to stand up for the things that he believed in and is paying a huge price for those. Um, but it is, to me, an incredibly uplifting story of seeing somebody who is so committed to these ideas that made him into an incredibly wealthy man coming from China when he was a kid with absolutely nothing and building multiple businesses in Hong Kong, uh, including... Uh, a, a journalistic enterprise in Next Media, Next Magazine, and Apple Daily. Um, it just so happened that all of this coincided with uh, May 3rd, last week, Wednesday, was um, National Press Freedom Day, a- International Press Freedom Day. Uh, and arguably, as Bill McGurn says, from the Wall Street Journal says in our film, Jimmy is arguably the most famous newspaper man currently jailed in the world. And his crime, really, despite the propaganda from Chinese officials about this, 
um, really originates with practicing journalism, of running a newspaper that's editorial page had a point of view, and that point of view was in favor of freedom and democracy and the rule of law. And those are the things that China has been eroding since the handover in 1997. They've started backing away from the agreement that they made in the handover from the United Kingdom to China of Hong Kong in 1997 almost immediately, but certainly within the last 10 years. You have seen that to the point that at one of the videos, again, that was taken down that we had posted, yes, did have violent and graphic content in it. And that was the violent and graphic content of the Hong Kong police tear gassing and beating protesters in the streets in 2019 as the people of Hong Kong exercised their voice in really the only way that they could, which is in protest. You know, there's one of the things that we took care to point out in the film is that, you know, they didn't have a full understanding of uh, rights in the same way that we do as Americans. They largely did not have the franchise. There was a local elected council and all of that, but um, not in the same kind of democratically led government that we would understand. But they enjoyed an enormous amount of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of their own individual thought and conscience. And China has been slowly and then quickly eroding that from the people of Hong Kong. We detail all of this in the film, and we encourage you to check it out at freejimmylai.com. There are ways that you can get involved after you've seen the film. Uh, We encourage you to check those out as well. Let's move on to our other topic for today, which is the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC. If you're not familiar with CPAC, uh, CPAC has been an annual gathering of conservative activists in Washington, D.C. It originated in the 1970s. Um, This was always a place where people who were really the most involved in the grassroots political operations of the conservative movement could get together and talk shop, talk strategy, uh, figure out what they're going to do. Uh, There was always a very, very important straw poll Again, back in go back to the 70s and the 80s and the, the early 90s, pre-internet days, where you can't just conduct polling as in uh, as easily as you can now. Uh, amongst the people who are again the most actively involved, there's a very important straw poll at CPAC every year about uh, who that group of people favored in terms of uh, the presidential Republican presidential nomination in the coming uh, in the coming years. So, I am a former CPAC attendee. Uh, I've been a few times. I think the last time was in 2011 or 2012. Uh, I will confess that I thought it was getting pretty depressing by that point in time when I was visiting it. And I was already starting to pick up, uh, I will confess, uh, and a good friend of mine pointed this out to me as well. And kind of one of those, we, he, he said what I was thinking in the moment, um, which is to me, it was remarkable how progressive the conference had got. Um, And I don't mean that in the way that I think most people understand progressive in terms of just being associated with the agenda of the political left. Um, I'm talking about progressivism, uh, qua progressivism as a philosophy uh, that you know, certainly had its roots uh, or history on the right as well. Teddy Roosevelt is a perfect example of how right-wing progressivism was absolutely a thing. And I think I was starting to see that emerge back in 2010, 2011, 2012, as the conservative movement was trying to grapple 
beginning to grapple with uh, what it viewed as a massive failure in 2012 and uh, not defeating Barack Obama in his run for re-election as president of the United States. CPAC has certainly gone some interesting directions since then. And the most recent evolution of this is last week. um, And this is not the first time that they have done this in general. But CPAC has gone international. What had previously been a gathering of American conservative activists in Washington, D.C., they have started to host these in other countries as well. And last week, CPAC was in Hungary. Now, we have talked about Hungary before. We have talked about the kind of obsession with Hungary that has emerged on the political right, particularly the very online political right. Uh, And it is I'm I'm scrolling through here the list of speakers at CPAC Hungary. And there are more people I don't recognize than people I do or only tangentially recognize. So for uh, people who are following this kind of thing, um, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, was a speaker. So uh, so much of what is going on uh, on the Hungary-interested American political right has been to lionize Viktor Orban and his approach to government in Hungary. Uh, Matt Schlapp, who's chair of the Conservative Political Action Coalition, uh, which puts on CPAC, Eduardo Bolsonaro, Kerry Lake, former Arizona Republican gubernatorial candidate, uh, Congressman Paul Gosar from Arizona. So there are some recognizable people, but a whole lot, again, of um, people from Central and Eastern Europe, which is an interesting evolution for uh, the uh, conservative political action coalition, the uh, American Conservative Union, which puts these things on in internationalizing all of this. What are we what are we to make of the again amongst the grassroots again which is what CPAC has largely been targeted to uh, this effort to Europeanize uh, and particularly through the prism of Hungary our understanding of what conservatism in an American sense is or should be. One of the things uh, that's been trendy on the new right uh, is industrial policy. And I think it's bad in economic terms. I think it's also bad just in terms of constitutionally and all that. But but this is a great example of why it's bad. Hungary has adopted a political movement conservative industrial policy. There's a lot of free money coming out of Hungary. I'm sure they they love to host it. I'm sure they put some money into hosting this. And what they hosted was a clown show. It is ridiculous uh, in many, many ways. The people who were there, the things they said and did, it was not just uh, Europeans, although, you know, some of them, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and a a lot of uh, Central and Eastern Europeans, there was um, people from France. You know, you can guess which which sort of... uh, leaning uh, among the French. Uh, there's South African uh, present, yet again, uh, uh, an Afrikaner um, uh, group that he was a part of. It is one of the bad ones, uh, I've confirmed, in case you're wondering. Um, and then I think most interesting of all, there was this Japanese uh, uh, speaker um, who 
uh, as part of uh, basically every headline was Japanese cult leader speaks at CPAC Hungary. And I was like, really? And I looked into it. And yes, a Japanese cult leader spoke at CPAC Hungary, um, member of the Happy Science Religion, created in 1986 in Japan. So I'm, I was born in 1984. And as a good rule of thumb for any listeners wondering, I'm very pro-religion and here at Acton, we're very pro-religion. But if you are tempted to join a religion that is not as old as you, that's a false religion. You can just you can just be sure. You don't have to do any more investigation. You can just say, how old is this religion? How old am I? And if you're older, don't bother. Um, so it's, it's a mess. I don't know why anyone—I mean, I do know why people take this seriously. There's a lot of money. But that, it, it just goes to show these are the same people that think, you know who should be planning industry? The government. We should be throwing money at stuff, and we're going to know the wave of the future or whatever. This is—, this is a literal clown show. These people are, you know, they're not yet has-beens, but they're going to be. Half of them don't have real titles. If you look at, you know, some of them maybe do have positions, but they don't even list those positions. Other ones are probably career, you know, think tankers or, you know, professional opinion havers who are between places who actually want their opinions. Um, and that's what industrial policy gets you. Do you want that in manufacturing? Because that's the, you'll get, you know, the metaphorical equivalent of uh, subsidizing a bunch of stuff that people don't care about and don't want and is completely dated or out of touch. Um, and you will tank your economy. Uh, Japan, yet again, another great example of uh, failed industrial policy. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 it's entertaining in one sense to look at it, but it's also incredibly. Uh, you know, discouraging to think that there are people out there who take this seriously. There are, you know, maybe even principled conservatives who pay attention because they say, well, this this used to be something that was representative of, you know, grassroots conservatism in America. Maybe it could be representative of grassroots conservatism in Europe. I have no idea um, based on this, whether that's actually true. Um, but certainly it's very out of touch, I think, even with the kind of normie conservative in the United States, not to mention um, everything else. So that's my take. <laughs> I just want to note as well that it, the descriptions of the speakers, as you noted, some of them are, are fairly entertaining with, you know, no disrespect being meant to um, one Ben Ferguson, who I remember once being billed as like the youngest conservative political radio talk show host in America, uh, is billed here as America's top political commentator. Big if true. Um, with no, again, no disrespect to Ben, but I just don't think that that's accurate. But the one that really struck me and really caught me is uh, Kevin Roberts, who is the president of the Heritage Foundation. And this is the way that he's described in this list of speakers. Uh, president of Heritage Foundation who sees Hungary as an example. Uh, I kind of love the phrasing of that because they don't really say an example of what. Uh, so I, I guess it, it turns into a bit of a Rorschach there in that it can be an example of whatever you want. Um, but I, I would go along the lines of what you're saying, Dylan, which is that it's an example of just how much of a fool's errand all of this seems to be. The idea that a we as the United States, a country of what now 335 million people uh, in 50 different states— all of which, and if you've driven across this country, you know this to be true, the character of those states are incredibly different. Um, that 
there is a whole lot that we as a nation are supposed to be gleaning from how we should govern ourselves from a nation, a demographically homogeneous, landlocked nation of a few million people in Central Europe, that there are meaningful lessons we're supposed to take from this, I just find to be bizarre. And this is another thing I just want to note in the kind of nature and orientation of American conservatism, especially activist American conservatism. I'm old enough. I'm sure I believe you guys would be as well, um, although I believe both of you much less politically involved than I was in my past life. The idea on the political right in movement conservatism, if you were to be pointing to we should be more like this nation in Central Europe, those used to be fighting words. Like so much of American conservatism was built up around the idea of American exceptionalism and a proper understanding of American exceptionalism, that it doesn't just mean you're exceptional like your sixth grade teacher used to tell you and pat you on your head. You're an exceptional student, which meaning you know, you're very, very good. We're weird and we're different. That's what American exceptionalism really means. So the idea that we are going to adopt the political model of, again, a demographically homogeneous landlocked nation of several million people in Central Europe as some kind of an example for how the United States, an incredibly diverse, expansive nation of 330-some million people, is just farcical. There are, like, many interesting things about this conference. Uh, Dylan pointed to some of them. There's also some sort of structural interesting things going on. Uh, Eric outlined, you know, CPAC in in America has been many things, you know, a networking event for conservative activists. You know, there's the straw poll, which was always the headline grabber of the American CPAC. Um, This is also a chance for, um, for folks to get press exposure. And this was one of the unique things about CPAC Hungary is that there were no press. Now, there are a lot of folks at CPAC Hungary that would be sympathetic with something like national conservatism. But this is a big contrast between what CPAC Hungary is and what the National Conservatism Conference is. When I was there at the not the most recent, but two ago in Orlando, there was a lot of space dedicated to press. There were press that reported on the event, sometimes in a very hostile way, but they welcomed that interaction and that dialogue and that exposure because part of what the conference goal is, is to put these ideas into circulation. And what we have at CPAC Hungary is not that by, by, by not having the press report on it. You had you know, journalists in Hungary watching the live stream event and still basically reporting on it. But it's, you know, I understand if you're trying to build some sort of pan-European conservative movement, that might involve some meetings. But it doesn't necessarily involve a conference or the sort of hybrid conference trade show that the American version of CPAC is. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much at a loss as to what purpose this would have. You have, on the one hand, you have some heads of state 
of both uh, Hungary and Georgia there. You have some current MPs, some current American members of Congress. You have some former MPs, heads of Congress. And then you have some very bizarre outliers. Um, And those outliers, I'm not sure what the value add there is other than discrediting the movement. Other than and and it because it, it's not it's not to raise the profile of the event. If anything, it diminishes the profile of the event and the in the in the seriousness. It undermines that, and you can sort of understand that if you're running a sort of CPAC America style hybrid conference trade show. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what this is. It seems to have taken some of those excesses of recent American CPACs and imported them without any of the sort of rationale that one could conceivably have for, you know, political movements are wild and woolly things. And there are always folks on the fringes of conservative movements. There are always folks on the fringes of any political movement. And they're always drawn to gatherings like this as an attempt to raise profile, build sort of movement mindshare. Um, but the contrast of, of, of the wild and woolly elements without sort of the press coverage, without all of the things that make, uh, you know, whether or not you enjoy the North American version of CPAC, um, it's, it's, it's definitely a wild and woolly, here comes everyone sort of event. And, um, and, you know, and one in which the press is invited and reports on and they do the straw poll and they do all these things to generate buzz. And I just, I just can't figure out it's not as if they've just transported the CPAC model to Hungary is they've imported very strange elements of it that seem incongruous to a more serious purpose. Well, they've imported uh, some elements of the Hungarian approach to politics now into CPAC. So I think this is kind of a, it's kind of a, a free trade relationship going on between Hungary and CPAC, if you will, that there's some exchanging of uh, ideas and approaches. But again, this is why I just keep coming back to the idea that the, the notion that this is going to be a model for the United States is, is just hilarious to me, if not only because um, – this is always one of the things that I like to point out to people, uh, especially during when people were panicking during the, uh, the the Donald Trump years. There was this period of time where I think it was particularly the political left would lionize, say, the British parliamentary system of government and, and wish, like, why couldn't we be more like that rather than the system that the founders came up with that divided power in a whole bunch of different ways. And – Essentially, my argument at that point in time to people who were very, very disturbed by the notion that Donald Trump had become president of the United States, um, Donald Trump had to grapple, even though uh, the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress at the time, had to grapple with very narrow majorities um, and a difficulty in getting things done. Um, And for people who were on the left who didn't want to see a lot of those things enacted, they should have been grateful for that, for that system that slows things down and makes it hard when you don't have um, a governing political consensus to get things done. 
In a parliamentary system, basically the party that gets elected to power gets to do whatever they want for a period of time until they become so unpopular or another election comes around that they likely either get thrown out or they get reaffirmed for the things that they've done and they get another run to do whatever they want. The, again, the, just the notion that Hungary, with its own parliamentary system of government and the things they can do because they have that kind of system, that we're going to be able to do even a fraction of those things in the United States is, again, just kind of hilarious to me. And I just I don't I really wish I could hear the compelling case for what it is that we're supposed to be learning from the Hungarian example that actually applies to the American system of government, to the American nation, because I have yet to hear that uh, explained to me in a compelling way. So uh, I think there's there's a through line here with our last subject, and it comes down to press freedom. Um, Hungary is not communist China, um, but why is this a weird notion? Well, it's once again... As Dan pointed out, partly because we have freedom of the press here. Um, whatever you may think of the press, and you have, uh, you're very entitled, and you're probably very accurate in whatever your negative opinion of whatever media you don't like is, it probably comes to mind. People can say the opposite. People can show up, and they can give their view, and they can do their investigation. We still have a culture and a mechanism for this here in a way that very clearly they do not in Hungary, and largely due to Viktor Orban. Um, and he has you know, constantly been shutting down press. There was a Politico article about someone who had been told he would have a press pass. And right before he was about to come, they said, oh, you should actually just watch online. There's nothing more to do. It was this very like cryptic sort of thing. He showed up anyway, tried to get in, couldn't get in. Um, he or she, actually, I, I didn't know the author name. I, I might be wrong about that. But, um, but you know, it's the sort of thing that... I think, if anything, Hungary needs to keep looking to the United States uh, as their example. Um, and in particular, since we're talking about the clown show of CPAC, I would recommend a different ringleader, uh, P.T. Barnum, who once said, no press is bad press as long as they spell your name right. Um, let the press in. Uh, if your ideas are good, believe in natural law. Believe that people will recognize what is good and beautiful and true, and they will latch on to that. Um, and if you are scared, maybe you should ask yourself, what's wrong with my ideas? Just as the Communist Party also ought to ask themselves. If they are so scared of the Acton Institute and the documentary we produced on Jimmy Lai, what is wrong with them? Um, how, how are we, who are just a few dudes here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, able to attract that kind of attention? Well, same sort of thing. Um, I think if you are excited about Hungary if you're one of those conservatives um, and, you know, the stand they've taken against woke issues or whatever. Um, well, fine. Maybe there's something to the spirit of that that resonates with you in a positive way. But it, at the very least, the methods are not ringing true to me. Politics is both principled and contextual. And you have a very unique situation in every country in which it's practiced. And the contours of that are always very difficult for people outside of those nations, not embedded in that history, to fully understand and appreciate. You have what is happening in Hungary is a response not only to a legacy of communism, 
but also to a legacy of corruption before the Orban government um, that sort of ushered in that wave of power. Um, you do not, you can't easily transport answers to questions, even if they're good answers, let alone bad answers, to another context. One of the things that folks look to Hungary for is family policy. They look at efforts of the Hungarian state to raise what is a very, very low, below replacement level birth rate. That has not been a success. You look at inflation in Hungary today, it's very high throughout the European Union. It's especially high in Hungary. This is not to say that nothing the Hungarian government has done has been good, has been effective, has been conducive to human flourishing. But the obvious first glance, if you were to look around the world for policies that the United States could embrace, our policy in 2023, United States of America in dealing with inflation that I have all sorts of problems with and that I think could be handled better is addressing the problem in the United States and American context more effectively than what is going on in Hungary today in its own context. If you look at questions of fertility, the United States, which is again facing declining birth rates, very serious problem, they are today higher than Hungary's. And Hungary's policies have not shown that they will enduringly raise them. So you have to get serious about what the results of these policies are, not just who they're pitched to as a solution, not just that they're focused. These are very serious. The Hungarian government should be focused on inflation. They should be focused on addressing in whatever ways are appropriate within the confines of rule of law, everything else, their fertility issues. They should maybe be looking at migration, which the Orban government is uh, – Opposed to uh, the, 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 the three sort of lines that Prime Minister Orban said was, you know, no to migration, no to gender, no to war. These were his three signet, his signature line of uh, of his of his piece. Those are slogans. Those are not detailed policy solutions that get us from point A to point B. And it's very easy to export slogans throughout the world. It is very hard to export solutions to other parts of the world. And I think there's a real, real limit to that. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes where you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.